you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So before we start, uh, has anybody not heard of the Ten Commandments? You don't have to stand up. There's one. I'm kidding. I made that up. Uh, Everybody has heard of, of the Ten Commandments, right? This is the most, I I alluded to it before, this is the most famous list of do's and do nots in the world, right? Most people know, and maybe even if you don't know the individual commandments by heart, you know of the Ten Commandments, mainly because most parents, including myself, have told their kids before, at least one of them, it says, God says to honor your mother and father. And actually, I, I would even argue that Most of the world, if not all of the world, agrees with at least five, probably six of these commandments, right? Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness to lie, don't covet, and honor your father and mother. mother. So already we've got this list of rules that most people agree with most of. So why are they so famous? Well, I think there's a few reasons, but... But very simply, I think it's just because of human nature. It's who we are. I think generally people are yearning and grasping for what to do and what to not do. Right? Like for me, this made me think of um, every. I, I watch the news now because I'm an adult and I watch the local news in the morning. And about every week, they say this before commercial. And now, a new study on coffee, right? And all I want to know is, do I drink it or do I not? Is it, is it good for me? Is it going to kill me next week? Like, do you drink coffee or not? Should you? It's so exhausting to me that I need a cup of coffee when that study comes out. Um, but there's a glimmer here for me of why the, the Ten Commandments are so famous. I'm like... And this happens to me every Sunday also, if I can confess it to you. I I think this to myself. Yeah, I get, okay, I get who God is. I get what God's done. But what do I do? Right, like, just tell me what to do. What do I do tomorrow? And so slowly over time, I think things like the Ten Commandments, um, people began to associate our God, the Christian God, as mainly a God of morality because we're so transfixed on what do we do and what do we not do. And so for a lot of people, especially people outside of the church, Christianity has become this religion based on what to do and what not to do. So the most important aspect for a lot of people outside the church and inside the church, if we're being honest, is what do I do? Like, what do do I actually need to do? But really, I think that was never the intention of God's story. If we look at the Bible and everything it says about what we do and not do, and all the, it's, there's lists of those things all over the Bible, But these lists of rules were never meant to exist in a vacuum separated from the story of who God is and what he has done. 
the grander narrative has a bigger point than what to do and what not to do. And we see um, that really this list of what to do and what not to do is birthed out of a story of who God is, what he has done for his people. And so to understand the Ten Commandments, we have to understand their context, right? We can't, um, we can't print them out, put them on a statue in front of a courthouse. It's, it's not enough. They're removed from their, their context when we do that. And so if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you've heard the story of Exodus um, and the exodus of the Israelites told, right? You've heard of their slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh And you've heard the narrative of God going through all these great lengths to to free them so that Pharaoh would relinquish his grip on on them in the land and let them go free and be delivered from slavery. And, And you see that that happens because of God's power and his grace. So then the Exodus turns into the story of of God's provision, his protection, his freedom, and his grace. He he multiplies them in Egypt. They become this great nation. The plagues allow Pharaoh to to finally let them go. He splits this Red Sea for them to walk safely through, safely through to a land of promise. And then in the wilderness, as we saw last week when Marshall preached, he makes food appear on the ground, and Moses hits a rock and water comes out of it. And then we get to, to this area, and before we get to chapter 21, or 20, where the Ten Commandments is, in chapter 19, God says this to Moses before we get the list of commandments, starting in verse 5. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In light of this promise from Yahweh, from God to Moses, God is now giving the commandments, which is giving his people guidelines to follow in order to be a holy nation, a nation set apart by God for his glory and his grace to be a blessing to the world. And actually, next week, we'll talk about um, a lot about what what God is doing to make us a a kingdom of priests. But for now, the Ten Commandments are him addressing what it means to be a holy nation. And a large part of what makes any nation a nation is an agreed-upon system of law. And for the people of God, this is true. So God outlines the law of his people And even beyond the Ten Commandments and into Leviticus, we're going to see God giving his people commandments and laws to govern and uphold societal justice and peace and his holiness. And so the context of the people of Israel getting the Ten Commandments is is a story of grace, a story of redemption, a story of freedom, and a promise that he will make them a holy nation. And so when we get to the verses, this is why God starts the commandments the way he does in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, remember that I have freed you. Remember that I have delivered you from slavery. Remember who you are, my beloved people. And remember what I've done for you in this whole story. 
right? We know that the story of the people of Exodus, the, the Israelites, has shaped our own story as the people of God today, right? We've talked about this week after week. And so our story as followers of Jesus is that God has delivered us by the work of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. He delivers us from slavery to sin, which ultimately deserve death, but we've been delivered just like the people of God, and, or the people of Israel. And just like the people of Israel, God now tells us how to live. But he never tells us what to do and not do in order that we might be delivered, that we might be saved. Right? Quite the opposite. He reminds us of what he has done for us. He shows us the work of Jesus. He explains to us the work that was accomplished And then he shows us what it means to be obedient as a way of showing us what freedom looks like. Ephesians 2 says famously that we were dead to sin, slaves to sin, living in the passions of our flesh, but God made us alive, delivered from death, delivered from slavery. He made us alive together in Christ and raised us up, showing his riches of his grace in kindness. But it doesn't end there. In verse 10, it says this, Why? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So does grace from God and the work of Jesus, does all that beautiful grace cancel out our need to follow the commandments of God? Absolutely not. We are free We have been delivered from sin and death, which means we are free to walk in love toward one another, free to walk in love towards God, to be marked with joy and love and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We're free to magnify the glory of God and his attributes in our own lives by doing what he says is good and abstaining from what he has said is evil. And we do this because God is the God of the universe, which means he gets to define what is good and what is evil. And James 2 continues this thought really through the whole letter, but says this, what, God, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, does not do good and abstain from evil? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So freedom in Jesus looks like this. We're free to be obedient. We are free to do good works. We are free to abstain from evil. And overall, we are free to glorify God who brought us out of the land of death and slavery and freed us. And we glorify him by joyfully obeying him because we know that's where true freedom lies. So we need these commandments. The people of Israel need these commandments. We need God to define what his people will be marked by. And we need God to show us and show them our need for him, right? Like if if we don't think that we fall short in any area when it comes to obey God and we don't know what areas we're supposed to measure up in, then we won't ever really think that we even need a savior. By what measure do I need saved? So we need the commandments. And so did the people of Israel. But not only do we need them, I think another question arises when we start to 
dig into that. Not only do we need them, but can we follow them? Right? Can we actually follow them? Can the Israelites actually follow these Ten Commandments? Like, can they do it? Can they fulfill it? And I think most of the world, when reading this list of commandments, thinks, well, I can't do them all perfectly, but I can do most of them. At least the, the five or six that I agree with, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, like I can probably do those. Well, for context, in Matthew 22, starting in verse 36, Jesus is asked by a lawyer a question. And the lawyer says this, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He's trying to pose a gotcha moment for Jesus, where Jesus is exposed as a false teacher. But this is what Jesus says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So this interaction with this lawyer frames the Ten Commandments for us, right? The first four commandments, I'd say, are summed up by this statement, love the Lord your God. And then the rest, even though they flow out from that one, are defined by love your neighbor as yourself. So let's look and see if we can, together, we can fulfill the commandments Perfectly, probably not, but even well. The first is, you shall have no other gods before me, so don't worship other gods. There's only one God, Yahweh. Don't worship any other gods. That means any other person, yourself, career, nothing. Or actual other gods that are false. And the second is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or idol and worship that. So don't worship anything or like a, a statue or a golden cow. Nor should you worship any idols of the heart like power, comfort, acceptance, or control. The third is, you shall not take the, Lord, the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. So revere his name. Don't use it frivolously. Don't use it in anger. Right? Only, don't use it in promises you might not keep, but but use it in reverence, in worship, and in petition. Use his name appropriately. And the fourth is, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Remember the holy day of rest. And so the Sabbath literally translates to stop. Stop. God rested on the seventh day. If he rested, we should rest to discipline and trust and faithfulness. So when I read these four, I I start to get that they're, yes, they're about loving God, about worshiping God, about allegiance to him and reverence for him. And I also start to realize that these are the hard ones. These are the ways God calls us to love him, always love him. To always revere him. These, to me, are the hard ones. But remember, before he calls us to any of these things, he reminds us who he is, what he has done, and in light of that, who we are. 
But I think for a lot of us, even in the church, if we're honest, the, a daily struggle is to, to believe and uphold these commandments. So if those are the hard ones, then what are the easy ones? The loving your neighbor ones. Well, the fifth says, honor our father and mother. And I've, I've failed that one a lot, right? But Jesus shows us what this can look like. He has human parents that he created because he's God. And Luke 2.50 says that Jesus was obedient to them. So even though he was technically God over his parents, he honors them in obedience. The sixth commands us not to murder. I haven't done that one. But then when I start to think, okay, I haven't done that one. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, he who is ever angry with another has committed murder in their heart. So I'm not off the hook. The seventh is not to commit adultery. Again, but, but again, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, anyone who has ever looked lustfully at another has committed adultery in their heart. And the eighth says, do not steal. Don't take anything that doesn't belong to you. And even if we haven't done that, the tenth commands us not to even steal in our hearts, to covet, enviously desire somebody else's things or their wife or their husband or their property. So we can't even steal in our heart or pretend like, man, I wish I had that car. It would be cool for me to drive around in it and... And then the ninth says, don't bear false witness, so don't lie about anyone else or about anything. So, in the spirit of the ninth commandment, if we're telling the truth, and if what Jesus says about these commandments is true, which I believe that it is, then I am guilty of breaking every commandment. And my guess is that you are too. And if you're like me and you're, you're confronted with this list of 10 that we failed to uphold even for a day, really any of them well, you should start to think, this is impossible. Following the commandments was a difficult task before Jesus interpreted them. But then Jesus comes and starts saying, well, if you even think about doing some of this stuff, you've done it. So the chasm between us and righteousness it is wide when we get the law, when the Israelites get the law. There's righteousness. I see it, and it's so hard to attain. And then Jesus comes and he says, you thought it was wide. Let me make it wider and wider and wider for you. It's so much farther than you ever imagined. And it's just 10 simple rules. So we know we can't fulfill the list of commands, not in the way Jesus has defined them. However, one who defined them is also the one who has promised to fulfill them. Initially, the people thought Jesus was coming. This is why they were so excited when Jesus started pre his preaching and teaching ministry. They thought Jesus had come to throw out all the laws. 
to abolish all these old laws that they had found impossible for decades and centuries and thousands of years to uphold. Jesus is going to throw them all out. And Jesus comes and does something wildly different. He emphasizes their importance. He, he defines them in a way that they're more difficult to uphold. And then he does the impossible. He says, I haven't come to throw them out. I've come to fulfill them. I've come to perfectly embody them in obedience. No one has ever been able to do it before. Nobody will ever be able to do it after on earth. He embodies them perfectly, not just the ten, the entire law of which there's a lot in the Old Testament. And in all that perfection, he allows himself in perfect obedience to be sent to a cross and die, even though he never broke any law. And he did that as a substitute for us who can't love God perfectly, nor can we love our neighbor perfectly. And then he rises from the grave, showing us that the work was finished and death was overthrown. So you see, God, he looks at us and he doesn't see all the little ways in our minds that we've broken the Ten Commandments. We who follow Jesus, he, he knows he's God, so he knows and is aware of all of those things, yet he sees in us who are in Christ righteous, perfect, blameless, guiltless sons and daughters. So if you think, as a Christian, if you're a believer in the room, if you think your sin is too big for Jesus to have bridged this widening gap that's wider than the theater, that's wider than the Grand Canyon, between righteousness and who we are, if you think Jesus isn't big enough to cover that gap for you, you're wrong. You're wrong. The Christian life is about, in part, growing in our awareness of our inability to follow the rules, and yet simultaneously growing in our awareness of, of a God who sent him son, himself in the form of his son, in the form of a man, to fulfill them for us, to bridge the gap that we couldn't as hard as we might try. So this is the true freedom for us who have been delivered from, from slavery and death. Jesus, who has all the freedom as God of the universe, he has the, the power and freedom to have, before he went to the cross, just say, stop, and the earth would have stopped spinning, the sun would have shut down, and all of it would be over. He had that power, and yet instead, he wields his immense freedom, freedom that we now have, in obedience. Do we get that? He, he wields his freedom in obedience. He sends his Holy Spirit to dwell with us and enable us to obey, right? This is even more grace upon grace upon grace. So not only is the list difficult to fulfill, but Jesus and the Father send the Spirit to indwell within us in order that we might actually start getting some traction on some of these in obedience. So obedience is soaked in grace. Grace that frees us 
to obey, grace that guides us to obey, grace that empowers us to obey, grace that sustains us to obey, and ultimately grace that says they're obedient no matter how many times they've failed. Because I don't see them, I see the perfect Son of God, Jesus, in their place. And so like the Israelites, like their fear of after, after God spoke to them on the mountain, they said, what, like don't have him speak to us again or we'll die. They, they revere God. There, there's so much reverence. They live in this reverence in that moment. And like the Israelites, we now live in reverence of a holy and powerful God who has freed us by a work more mighty than we could have imagined or hoped. And truly, we're a holy nation marked by holy rules that we can fulfill because of a holy spirit that indwells us and a holy Savior who died for us. So no, Christianity does not center on what good things to do and what bad things to avoid. It's not the point. Christianity centers on the gracious work of God who lived and died and rose on our behalf. A God who invites us to be free, to rest in him fully. And a God who invites us to obey his good voice. So just like the New Testament says, obedience shows our faith. If God has been this ultimately unlimited, graciously good, our only response is to obey what he says and to rest in our imperfection. And so this morning, this is what we will celebrate at the communion table. We will come and receive Christ and all his benefits. Our faith will be renewed. We are strengthened for the work of obedience and reminded of who God is and what he has done and who he has made us to be, a holy nation. So let's come this morning and be empowered for the mission to share the story of God, who he is, and what he has done in our own lives by showing people our obedience, by showing the world what it looks like to try and follow. And though we might fail, our hope is not lost because we have a God who has done it. So let's come and remember who he is, what he has done, and who we are in light of that at the table together. Let's pray. Father God, you are you are so good and so gracious and I I respond in reverence. Would we would we respond with this at, at the table and with this last song in reverence not for fantastic musicianship or interesting words, but in reverence for who you are and what you have done, would we worship you and would we leave here willing to die in order to be obedient to you, willing to die in order to be set apart for your glory and your grace and willing to step into the awkwardness of conversations with those who don't know you. Would we be willing to 
forge the relationships that are difficult, step into them in love, knowing that we have a story that invites others in. We have a story of a God dripping with grace. Would that story overflow from within us that others can't help but drink from it? Others can't help but hear it, see it, respond to it, want part of it. Lord, would you make that our story here in Montrose, which we know you are sowing. We trust you with your story. We trust you with your name. Would you make it great among us? Would we revere it and consistently respond in humble obedience? Lord, we love you. We trust you. We praise you. We thank you for your grace. We pray all this in your name. Amen.